You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe who helps people who feel far from God to know Jesus, cultivate freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We're also a diverse tribe who welcomes everyone from bikers to bankers, PhDs to GEDs, every age, race, and walk of life. So whether you're a longtime Christ follower or a spiritual investigator, we hope you're encouraged through our content. Enjoy today's teaching. Good, good, good. Well, good to see you guys. Uh, Today, we're going to continue studying through Ephesians. We're going to ask the question, what makes you mature? Now, when you're growing up, did you ever, like me, get confused about when you were really mature? Because when you're a little kid, you can order off the kid's menu, but then you couldn't really order off the adult's menu until you got to be 10 years old, right? Remember that day? It's like, hey, I get to order off the adult menu. Yeah, so you get excited about that, but then you think you're all mature. But really, when you turn 16, what happens when you turn 16, kids? Driver's license, right on. And so uh, that you get your driver's license, you think, hey, that's a great time. That's when I'm mature. But you're, are you really mature at 16? Because it's not till 18 that you can vote in an election and then you can join the military and die for your country when you're 18. So one would think that you're mature when you're 18 years old. But even though you can vote, you can go into the military at 18, you can't legally drink until you're 21. And we know that doesn't make you any more mature. It probably makes you digress. But then even though you can drink legally in the United States, you don't uh, you, you don't get the break on your insurance, your auto insurance, and you can't rent a car until you're 25, right? So oh, it, this is why we get confused about when we're mature, right? Well, Paul is trying to help us learn maturity. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he tells us we need to move t- towards being uh, mature in manhood, and I would add womanhood, and he says he wants us to no longer be children, spiritually speaking, but he wants us to mature, see? So how do you know if you're mature? Well, during this series, we've been encouraging each other to mature in our identities in Christ. And so the big idea for our series has been we want to live up to our identities that are in Christ rather than living down to where we were before. And, you know, uh, throughout this time, we've been going chapter by chapter through the little book of Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people in Ephesus in Asia Minor called Ephesians. Some of you got the little Ephesians books. You got those little books. I've seen a lot of them around church. Some of you getting your stamp in it every week. Some of you got all four stamps. You know, you get a puppy or an ice cream or something for the stamps. Um, And as we've been studying through the scriptures, We've been asking the question every week, how do we know we can really trust the scriptures? Is it, are they really historical or is it just a lot of fairy tales? And we've said they're actually historical. We've been looking into the world of archaeology just about every week. And what I want to show you today, a little archaeological nugget, is called the King David Stone. King David is a significant character throughout the Bible. He's mentioned over a thousand times. And before recent days, we didn't have any record of David outside the Bible. That was until 1993, not very long ago. The city of David was discovered at a place called Tel Dan, and they found a 3,000-year-old stone there with the inscription, King of the House of David. They not only found the evidence that David 
historically literally existed, but they found other names that are mentioned in the Bible that had not been mentioned in any other discipline outside the Bible. And they found them there at this site. This is why Doran Spielman, who's the vice president of the City of David Foundation, said the ongoing archaeological excavations of the City of David continue to prove that ancient Jerusalem is no longer a matter of faith, but also a matter of a fact, see? So I'd hate to be that guy that says, oh, this David wasn't mentioned, you know, outside the Bible, so he didn't exist, and then archaeology just proves you wrong, you know, every time. We can trust the scriptures, that they're historic, and we can trust that it speaks into our identities when we follow Jesus. And as we look in the scriptures today, we're going to see that one of the characteristics of a mature person, spiritually speaking, is unity or oneness in the faith. So today's big idea is simply this. We are one. And when we say it together, I'll have you say it to your neighbor. I want you to put up one finger. Now, you people be careful which finger you put up. This is a family show here at City Drive Right On. So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell them we are one. Good. We are one. Um, I just did someone a favor if you sat next to a hot chick, right? So uh, you, that, that could really help you out. But we, we get this from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. And every time I say the word one, read the word one in this passage, I want you to put up your one finger. Ready? Here we go. Paul says we're to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So see, we are one. You see it mentioned a lot. And today I'm going to show you four facets of our oneness in Christ. Look at number one, the gentleness of oneness. If you want to be mature, spiritually speaking, you have to learn to be Gentle. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so if you ever met someone that you have to kind of just bear with them uh, because they're not that fun to be around sometimes. But we, we're, we learn unity when we're gentle with each other and we can bear with one another. But it's, this is not a naive kind of gentleness here, but it's also a truthful gentleness, you know? Have you ever known someone that it's really hard to speak the truth around them because they get so offended at everything? But what this talks about is uh, a truthfulness along with the gentleness. That's why a few verses later, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul has to say, rather speaking the, what's that next word? Truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so uh, just because we're gentle with people doesn't mean that we lie to them. We've got to speak the truth in love. So maturity is speaking the truth with a gentleness about it, you know? But look at number two. To help us become one, God has given us the gifts of oneness. You see some different gifts in the next few verses that God has given to help spur oneness and unity among us. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers 
And here's the reason he gave these five gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he gave these gifts. We have the apostles there. Now, today, we don't have apostles in the same way that we had them back in the day because the apostles would write stuff down and it became the scriptures like we're reading today. So anybody who claims to be an apostle today, if they want to add to the scriptures, <laughs> false prophet, right? Um, but apostles today, what they do is they're good at planting churches. So apostles create environments or startup environments of oneness. See, but the next gift it talks about there are the prophets and prophets tend to speak boldly about all the different ways that oneness is being damaged in an unnecessary manner. And then the next gift there are the evangelists and the evangelists are not necessarily just, you know, the guy in flashy clothes on TV asking for everyone's money, but the evangelists are actually people who help people come to oneness with God. Like people who didn't know God, the evangelist helps them connect with him in a way that they can receive. And then the shepherds are people that help people get healthy. They nurture people and help them get healthy so they can, can encounter oneness in their relationships. And then the teachers teach people all the different truths about oneness so that they can grow in oneness with each other and with God. And here's what happens when all five of these different gifts, all the way from the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, uh, that when the, these gifts are operating, you'll find the next thing to be true. And this is number three, and that is the discernment of oneness. Remember, I said this is oneness is not just this naive holding hands, singing kumbaya with everybody who believes everything under the sun, but it's a discerning kind of oneness. Go with me to Ephesians chapter four, verse 14. It says, so that, there, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of, what's that next word? Doctrine. You ever heard people say doctrine's not important? Paul says, no, doctrine's an important deal. He says, we don't want to be carried around by every wind of doctrine. And look at the last part by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So there are people that are crafty out there that want to get us to veer off the path. And that's why doctrine is important. And so we don't want to be naive, but we want to learn to be discerning. And here's what a lot of people will say in our world today. They'll say Christianity is just one of many world religions. You know, following Jesus is just one, and they call it a religion. We understand it's not just religion, it's relationship with Jesus, but they'd say it's just one of the religions, and none of the religions really see the truth, but all of them just kind of see their perspective on God. They're just one facet of God, uh, but they don't really see the truth. And here's how people will perpetuate this thinking and this mythical way of, of believing, is that they'll say it's kind of like an elephant and these three blind men see an elephant, or they don't see an elephant, but they approach an elephant, and they touch the elephant, and one blind man touches the ear of the elephant, and he says, the elephant is flat like a leaf, and then another blind guy touches the, the foot or the leg of the elephant, and he says, the elephant is thick like a tree, and then the third blind man touches the trunk of the elephant and says, a blind, uh, an elephant 
is long like a snake. And so the idea is, is that all the different religions of the world are just describing the elephant as they encounter the elephant. But here's why that illustration is wrong and backfires and is actually hypocritical. Because according to the illustration, they're saying that all the other religions are just ex describing what they experience, but no one really can know what the whole elephant looks like. But the person telling the illustration claims to see the whole elephant, right? So see why that uh, illustration doesn't work. And so we just can't buy into any, everything that anyone tells us. You know, when you're a child, you just eat whatever they put on your plate. But as you grow up in maturity, you have to make decisions about what you're going to eat and what's healthy for you. And so to be mature means we're to be theologically discerning. What I want you to understand is that authors, even Christian authors, are looking for book sales and they're looking for likes and clicks. And oftentimes I've noticed with Christian authors, some of them are looking so hard to find this obscure truth that no one's ever heard or no one's ever written about that it leads them down the dark path. See, it leads to the dark side, like the Sith, see? Um, so we've got to be theologically discerning. In fact, the New York Times bestseller list isn't just a list of the books that sold the most. It's oftentimes decided in advance by publishers who's going to get on that list. So it's not as simple as you think. So when it comes to teachers, you look for three tests in that teacher as to whether or not they're a false prophet. And the three tests are scripture, the Trinity, and salvation. Let me break down each one of those three things. How do they view the scriptures? Do they view the scriptures as inspired by God and trustworthy? False teachers will subtly and methodically denigrate the scriptures. And there's a reason for that. Because our spiritual enemy, the devil, is combated by the truth that's contained in the word of God, in the scriptures. That's why you go to the early parts of the Bible in Genesis and you see the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to eat the fruit that was forbidden. And, the, and here's how he did it. He, he started with this lie. Did God really say? Did God really say that? And have you ever felt that lie? Did God really say I'm supposed to do this or that? That's the lie of the enemy. And we combat it. We're going to see how the second Adam, Jesus, combated this in the New Testament of the Bible when Jesus was Fasting for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He was perhaps hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, if you're really who you say you are, if you really have that identity as the son of God, turn those stones into bread so you can eat. And how did Jesus combat the devil? He said, it is written. See, it's in the word of God. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if you're trusting the scriptures and your ability to know the scriptures and use them when you're tempted is denigrated, then you will have no weapon against the enemy who wants to destroy your life. So be careful how so, you know, when you're listening to a teacher that doesn't have a high view of the scriptures. But the second test is the Trinity. We were singing about the Trinity just a minute ago, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, a false teacher will fixate on one member of the Trinity 
to the neglect of the others. It's not the bold-faced lie that gets you. It's the half-truth that gets you. And so be careful how someone views the Trinity. Is it God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is there a fixation on one to the neglect of the others? Be careful of that one. Number three is salvation. In case you're new to church, what is salvation? Well, it's how you get into a relationship with God. And false teachers will tend to add more to salvation, place more on people, more stuff they have to do in order to receive the gift of salvation. So we saw just a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. But false teachers always want to tack on some religious rules and get you to have to do other things that are not required to receive love relationship with God. It's just a gift. You just simply believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. Oh, sure. You have to admit your sins. I mean, it's admitting your sins is more than just saying we all make mistakes, but it's realizing, hey, I've screwed up and it's offensive to a holy and loving and perfect God. And I have to uh, ask for his forgiveness somehow. And so I just believe that Jesus died on the cross. He took the punishment there on the cross for my sin. And then Jesus rose again from the dead to give me new life. I just received that as a gift. And so be careful how someone views salvation. Now, remember I said that it's the half truth that gets you. Most false prophets don't come to you with bold faced lies, but they just go one or two degrees off. And then over time, you realize you're a long ways off the path of God. When you start buying into their teachings, I was having a lunch with a, with a friend last week, and he's got this friend that's a pilot in Peru. And this guy hauls people around in these huge planes, hundreds of people. And the pilot said, if I'm going from Peru to Miami, Florida, if I get one degree off, we end up in Cuba. If I get two degrees off, we end up over the ocean. The plane runs out of gas and hundreds of people die. This is the consequence of false teaching. That just seems to go off just a little bit, but it ends up in a really bad place. See, Now, it's not just the doctrine that we have to pay attention to, but it's the way we live or our ethics. So we don't just buy into any ethic. We don't just say things that are okay if they're not really okay, according to the inspired word of God. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says, they become callous or hardened in their hearts. They have given themselves up to, look at this, sensuality, greedy. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so people will get involved in any kind of, I guess, sensual, impure practice. And so people today will say, well, why would you go to an ancient book about your sex ethic? And I would ask the question, well, why would you go to old philosophers and people of antiquity, you know, older people like Foucault, Nietzsche, Freud, Nero, especially when that current sex ethic is leading people towards an epidemic of emotional health problems and furthermore, an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases that most people don't really want to talk about today. I found a, a little article in Texas Public, Public Radio and they were talking about the problem of STDs here in the United States 
And they quoted the CDC saying the U.S. has the highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases in the industrialized world. And so if you like itching a lot, man, the current sex ethic may be perfect for you if you like to itch all the time, right? Look, the, the sex ethics of people today are not new at all. Paul confronted these Back in, you know, when he wrote Ephesians and when he wrote Corinthians and the people in Ephesus and Corinth actually had every bit as progressive of a sex ethic as people do today. And so we would say it's not progressive, but it leads people off the path towards, you know, consequences that you don't want in your life, you know. But at this church... We're not going to be throwing stones at people that are struggling with sexual purity. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why is because I have, you know, when Jesus says he who's without sin cast the first stone, I better not be casting that first stone. I assure you of that. And I thank God for people that practiced what's taught in Ephesians for me. Go with me to Ephesians chapter four, verse two. It says, there are people with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I thank God that people were gentle with me and patient with me and bearing with me in love as I'm, I was trying to grow in my faith. And so if you're struggling in some way today, this is not the church where we want to kick you out or get rid of you because of your struggles. Cause we, a lot of us have those struggles. You know, it's just like with your little babies, those of you who, who have been parents or are parents currently, you know, that you, you got little babies and they're going to crap their pants sometimes, aren't they? And you're going to change diapers. There's going to be poopy diapers everywhere. There's babies, there's diapers most of the time, you know? And so it's like, same thing is true in church In a church like ours, there's going to be some poopy diapers around, aren't they? And you don't throw the baby out, do you? No, we love the baby. We change the baby. We clean, we help the baby clean up. We train the baby to be potty trained so that when they're in their 20s, they're not sitting around crapping their pants all the time, right? And that's what, what we're being called to by Paul is to step up and mature in our identities in Christ. So we don't say stuff's okay if it's not really okay, but at the same time, we're gentle with each other, bearing with one another, you know, because we love each other. And that love is so important to the equation here. But look at number four, mature believers embrace the purpose of oneness, a united vision. We have a united vision together. Look with me at verse 16 of Ephesians 4 from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body. What's that next word? Grow so that it builds itself up in love. You have two things there. Growth. Healthy things grow and then being built up. And that is the two facets of our mission statement as a church. We're helping people who feel far from God. So we're seeking to reach people here in our church who are unchurched, who perhaps don't have a relationship with God. And we want to help people come to know him, to know Jesus and become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So there's reaching people 
who are far from God. And then there's helping them become disciples, helping them become healthy followers of Jesus. We do that in four ways here at City Tribe Church. We help people to know Jesus, cultivate freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the world. So when we're healthy, um, we're growing. Now, look, I like things to, you know, stay small. I don't like to go to big concerts at the Alamo Dome because I'm too old. I, I can't stand up the whole concert, right? I go to concerts where you sit down, you know, where you can chill. But healthy things tend to grow. And you know, right now, because of Pastor Joe's leadership, we've got more people in our tribe groups than we've ever had in the history of our church. Right on? And we, yeah, that's worth clapping for. And so our tribe groups are growing. Cultivate's got more people. Our Cultivate ministry, where people deal with deep wounds, hurts, habits, and hangups, got more people going to it than at any other time in the history of our church. And these are things we want to help people to grow healthy. That's why we have these weekend services. That's why we, on Tuesday night, we have an awakened service. You can come down here at 7 p.m. We're going to talk about miracles from the Bible, and hopefully it won't be, be too crazy or anything like that, but we'll teach you on miracles. We're going to, I guess affirm some tribe group leaders here. And because of this health, our church, our little church is actually growing. You know how January is typically a time where church attendance goes up. And the reason that church attendance goes up in January is because it's a new year and people want to start new things. And so people go to church and get gym memberships, right? Well, so far this month, the first three Sundays of this month, we've had over a hundred more people in our in-person services than what we had in January of this year. And so our little church is growing. That's good news, isn't it? However, you look around and you can see some empty seats around here. And when I go to the 830 service or I go to the early service or I go to the one o'clock service and there's empty seats up in the balcony there, we still have space and room to grow some more. And that's part of the challenge for today is that we all want to say, hey, we want our dear friends and loved ones and people that we know in our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. We want to invite them here so they can hear about Jesus and come to know him. And so that's part of the challenge for today is to invite someone that you know that needs to come to relationship with Jesus. And look, I have to constantly remind myself of the mission that we're on here. And there's a little book that helps me kind of steer back towards true north when it comes to our mission. And it's a little book by Alan Hirsch. He's an Australian guy, and he wrote this book called The Forgotten Ways. And in his little book, he talks about how they planted an urban church in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And they planted it in the inner city and people were excited and they were reaching out to people in the inner city and helping people and new people were coming to faith in Jesus. But here's what happened. Here's what screwed up their little church is that they had a lot of people start to come who are of a consumer church hopper type of mentality. And when someone's a consumer driven church attender, they have a preoccupation with safety, security, comfort and convenience. City tribe, are we growing towards comfort and convenience? In Alan Hirsch's church, he said, the, the environment of the church changed. 
it was like, it was, it was, it went from me for the community, the church community, and the community for the world to the community for me. You see the difference there? If we're so focused on ourselves that we're not reaching out to other people to come to know Jesus and help them encounter him, then the community becomes about me, you know? And he says, uh, you know, you got to get out of that or it'll ruin your church. In fact, um, I thought to myself, how's my thinking regarding comfort and convenience as it relates to church? Can I ask you, did these thoughts cross your mind sometimes? Thoughts like this. You know, I probably don't want to go to City Tribe today because it's inconvenient to drive all the way downtown. And then it's inconvenient to drive all the way downtown. And then you got to park in some obscure parking garage, you know, that's somewhere back there behind the theater. It's so inconvenient. And then it's so inconvenient, you might have to walk past a homeless person who asked you for money or something like that. But can I tell you, by the way, can I take a time out here? If you're one of our street friends in the service, you're a part of our church. We love you as a part of this church. And we're not a church just for the poor. We're a church along with the poor because that's a part of our family here. And people who don't want our street friends to be a part of our church are probably not going to like it here. Once you know that. You ever think it's so inconvenient? There are going to be drug addicts in that church. There are going to be people who have spiritually poopy diapers that are different from me in that church. There are going to be people of a different color than me in that church. There are going to be people who are a different socioeconomic level than me in that church. And that city tribe church is not the place to go to hobnob and market for business, right? Because, you know, everybody's not here about business. We're here about something else, God's business, you know? So look, yeah, you get it out of your system, clap it out. Yeah, that's good. Good. See these thoughts roll around our head. Is it about comfort and convenience for us? And Alan Hirsch says, we don't need more community. You ever hear people say that? We need community. We just need to be in relationships with each other and we'll huddle and cuddle together and we'll circle the wagons, you know, and just stay safe here from the mean old world out there. He says, we don't need community. We need what's called communitas. Here's communitas. It happens in situations where individuals are driven to find each other through a common ordeal, humbling, marginalization, or risk. It involves intense feelings of togetherness and belonging brought about by having to rely on each other in order to survive through a common ordeal. And that's a part of communitas. And I think the greatest example and illustration of communitas is that great theological work, Finding Nemo. Remember Finding Nemo? So on that movie, Marlon the dad, he finds communitas with Dory, who's, you know, a little bit silly, but they find this great connection because they're on mission together to save his son, Nemo. And they save Nemo from the four walls of an aquarium. They get him out of the aquarium so that Nemo 
can experience the thrill and excitement and adventure of the ocean. We're not made to just be in the four walls of the church. We're made to be on mission out there in the ocean, down here in the midst of the ocean. What happens to our cities if everybody keeps avoiding the inner city for safety and convenience? Our cities just plunge into all sorts of problems, don't they? My wife and I have been on this urban church mission for a few years now, and we've never felt so together in our marriage and in our relationship. But it doesn't come without its problems. One of the problems, can I just gripe to you a little bit? I really get mad when people steal my bicycles, okay? But those of you that have been in the inner city at all, you know, it's just part of the urban tax, right? It's just part of your urban homeowner association dues that your bikes are going to get stolen. I don't like it when my bikes get stolen. And I get really mad when they go through my doors to grab my bike and steal my bike. And Jesus tells me I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. I'm like, okay, Jesus, you got it. I'm going to pray that the bike thief, when he's riding down the road on my bicycle, that the, the front wheel will fall off and that thief will face plant into the asphalt there. That's what I'm going to pray, Jesus. And I'm also going to pray, Jesus, that the fleas of a million camels will nest on their armpits, okay? I do not like the, the bike thief. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> and that's a silly example of a bit of the risk here in the city. But one night I was reminded by, uh, of the real potential dangers out there. When my wife got home and she was like shaken, I could tell. She's usually pretty poised. And she was shaken by something. I said, honey, what, what had just happened? She couldn't hardly talk. And what she explained to me was when she was on her way home from ministering to homeless families, you know, right here near our theater, she was going home. And this guy stopped her and other cars in traffic and drove by and pointed his gun out the window. And he drove by slowly and he pointed the gun. He stopped right at her face and she just closed her eyes and prayed, Jesus, if I'm supposed to meet you today, I'm ready to meet you today. And thank the Lord, this guy just kept right on going and didn't pull the trigger. But the dangers are real in the ocean. I want you to know that. And it's not a new danger, but it's an old danger that Jesus told us many years ago. If you want to save your life, you lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, he says, you'll find it. The guy that wrote this little letter, this little chapter that we're studying today, at the start of the chapter, Paul writes, I therefore, a what? Prisoner for the Lord. He went to prison because he followed Jesus, see? But we want everything to be convenient and comfortable. You know, there are three responses to my challenge that I'm giving you today. One is the over-challenged, then there's the under-challenged, and then there's the never-challenged. goes something like this. The over-challenged among us you're so hurt right now because of things that have happened in your life. You're like, Pastor Doug, 
I don't have room for risk and adventure and laying down my life right now. I'm just trying to get my head above water emotionally and spiritually. And I want you to know you need some care right now. And we've got prayer leaders here and we've got tribe groups and all sorts of stuff to get you back on your feet again emotionally and spiritually so that you can again jump on mission or start on mission with this. So that's the over challenge. But then there are the under challenge and the under challenge tend to be Christian believers who have not stepped out in risk and faith in a long time. Christian believers that are bored. And the reason you get bored with your faith and the reason that you sit around and argue with your Christian friends about predestination and transubstantiation is because you've not stepped out in faith in a long time to share Christ with someone, to invite an unchurched friend to come to church where they can hear about Jesus. Because I'm telling you, when you step out in faith, everything changes and you feel life in you again. And some of you have grown so bored and so used to and fixated on comfort and convenience that you're not encountering the life that Jesus said we could have, life of abundance. There's no connection with Jesus if there's not risk and faith, you know? And then there are the never challenged. Never challenged among us are those that you've not yet had a relationship with God through Jesus, and you've never encountered the challenge. And here's why. You're like me when I was much younger. You thought, you know, church isn't an adventure. God isn't an adventure. God is an old, crusty place with old, crusty people and these old ladies just sitting around like sharing prayer requests, catching up on the cheese may that really is the gossip session. I want to invite you into the adventure of a lifetime. If you choose to believe in Jesus and really follow him, it'll be an adventure of a lifetime for the ages. And so with all this in mind, what do you say we pray? And as we bow before the Lord, if you've never been challenged, never had a relationship with God through Jesus, my challenge to you is to receive that today. And perhaps you sense God by his spirit drawing you to a relationship with Jesus. So just talk to him in your own heart. You don't even have to say anything out loud. And there are no magical prayers to be offered. It's just really communicating your heart to him. Just, maybe you just say something like this. God, look, I know I've sinned. I've screwed up. But right now in this moment, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for my sin. And he rose again from the dead to give me new life. Welcome into my life. And as we continue in prayer, the next prayer is for those of you that have been under challenged. And you've realized that you've gotten too comfortable. And perhaps you'd want to return to your first love and say to God, God, I'm no longer just going to focus on my own comfort and convenience, but I want to experience faith and risk again, like it was when we first started walking together. 
I want to step out in faith and share Christ with someone else and care for the poor and invite someone to church and, you know, have conversations with them afterwards and reach out to others because it's not just about me. God, I pray that you would make me mature. And I know that just living for my own convenience is not spiritual maturity. So, Father, I welcome the adventure. Thank you for what you're doing among us today, God. You're speaking to people in all these services and nudging us towards maturity, and we can't thank you enough because we know that deeper encounters with you and your love are on the other side of these challenges. And we receive your challenge today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, as we wrap up today, uh, just a few things I want to remind you about. Next week, we're going to be in chapter five of Ephesians, and we're going to talk about what it means to be spirit-filled. So if you ever heard those words, spirit-filled, we'll talk about that. Maybe you thought being spirit-filled meant people at church are doing cartwheels and stuff. Uh, Well, it's not about that, but we'll study it in the Bible uh, next Sunday from Ephesians chapter five. Also, it's not too late to get signed up and registered to be a part of one of our tribe groups. They start, I think, September the 7th. You can go to citytribe.church slash tribes, get involved in one of those groups if you haven't already. And then there's also a sense of oneness and unity as we pool our resources together to serve people in our church and around the city. You know, in Acts in the Bible, it says that everyone shared their resources. They shared what they had so there were no needy among them. And I just looked at a random sampling of needs that you guys have met through your tithes and your offerings here at the church over the past few weeks. And on one of the emails, I saw someone who couldn't pay for their rent. And because of your generosity, we were able to help them pay their rent. I saw someone else whose air conditioner went out when it was like 135 here in San Antonio, and you guys helped pay for the air conditioning repairs so the family didn't like melt into a puddle of wax in their own house. And I saw someone else on an email that they couldn't afford to pay their CPS electric bill, and they were about to get shut off. And you guys, because of your generosity, helped them pay their CPS bills. And so I want to say thank you, honor to you for the ways that you're being generous so there are no needy among us. And we may not be the richest church, but I guarantee you we can be the most generous church as we share what we have out of a motivation of love and not greed in our own hearts. Now, if you're new here, you're like, how do I bring tithes and offerings and all of that at City Tribe Church? Because you don't, you guys don't pass like those chicken buckets in front of everybody's face, you know, and make everybody feel guilty if they can't give everything. Well, um, here's the way we do it. It's a bit more discreet. You can mail your offerings into the P.O. box number that you see on screen. If you do everything by text messaging, you can text to tithe. And then uh, if you are here in the theater, then you can go to the giving stations, physical stations that are located near the exit of the theater. But the simplest way is just get on your phone or whatever device you have and get into a browser and type in citytribe.church slash tithe. Tithe is spelled T-I-T-H-E. And you can hit it that way. So before you guys worship through your financial stewardship and generosity, let's stand up together and let's make some identity 
declarations together, shall we? And so I'll have you guys repeat these things with me out loud. You ready? Say, I'm chosen. I'm a masterpiece. I've got the power. We are one. We are one. That's so good. So dear brothers and sisters, walk from here in unity and oneness of this mission of risk and faith to serve others around us, not in comfort and convenience, but with faith and risk to further the kingdom of his love to people in our world that desperately need it. You guys have an amazing Sunday. We will see you Tuesday night at Awaken. We're glad you were a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check the City Tribe YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, citytribe.church. May you go from this podcast knowing that you are loved.